Hi, Barney here. Welcome to Loco Ludus. Well, kind of Loco Ludus. This episode is in fact the first of an occasional series that Andy Goodman and I have decided to do. So really, it's a collaboration, a simulcast or whatever you call it, between Expedition to the Grizzly Peaks and Loco Ludus. The idea to make this uh, an irregular series came after we had already recorded the conversation that you're about to hear. So, please forgive this slightly contorted and reverse-engineered intro, but I'm sure there's lots of hilarity to get out of it, so um, we hope you enjoy it. The plan is that... I host one of the occasional series on Loco Ludus, and then Andy hosts one on Expedition to the Grizzly Peaks, and then me again, then Andy again. I don't think we're putting any particular plans down in terms of when they're going to come out, because... As you'll realise, they do. They're going to take a bit of prep. <laughs> they're going to take a bit of prep sometimes. In any case, in any case, I'm sure there's some good stuff we can be doing to, you know, now to get on with. The name, the name for this occasional series, which bimmels between these two podcasts is appendicitis and uh well i tell you what andy why don't you explain where all of this comes from yeah so i've been listening to a lot of podcasts over the last few years that um, focus on the Appendix N literature and I hadn't read a lot of it I was aware of it I knew the titles I'd scoured through uh, the Dungeon Master's Guide for in advanced D&D and, and looked at the list of books and was always intrigued by what was on them and never really read any apart from Lord of the Rings and maybe one or two others but having listened to all these podcasts I have then become very interested in in that list of books that idiosyncratic weird list of books and I have subsequently read a load of them or rather mostly um, listened to them on audiobooks and I found them all most of them great actually way way better than I ever thought they had any right to be particularly Conan um, particularly um, Robert E Howard he's actually a really good writer Um, Edgar Rice Burroughs on the other hand yeah, I can I can take or leave um, John Carter. <laughs> <laughs> Good job we're not talking about that. 
What we are going to be talking about is something we actually like, which is Mervyn Peake's Gormenghast books. Tell us more, Andy. So on the back of our Gormenghast recording, um, hang on, this intro is going to go before it, possibly. So as a result of us deciding to do a Gormenghast recording, it occurred to me um, that Gormenghast was not in Appendix N. Um, and probably for, for some very good reasons, um, as as we will discuss. It's very hard to see how you can make a D&D campaign out of it, even though I stupidly tried to do it. Ah, but you see, Andy, for me, the big question is what can Gormenghast and Mervyn Peak offer us in terms of concepts or toolkits or methods for role-playing. It's not so much about recreating the setting, it's what we can take uh, and and reintroduce somewhere else. Anyway, sorry, I interrupted you. Carry on. So I thought, what if there's all the other books? <laughs> Everything that isn't on Appendix N. Appendix negative M, N, or, or Appendix hmm, or appendicitis and I think that while we're, we're rapidly run out of books um, to do because we'd have to read a whole bunch of new books I, I you know there's we'd have to scour the arc I, I don't think we'd find anything as good as peak so that might be a problem but um, I think the idea of doing this joint podcast is compelling and I think that's why I want to do it and um, I'm really glad you suggested it so let's see what else comes I suppose uh, I think we should occasionally talk about other books but I, I guess it means us having to do the work beforehand which um, well I don't mind um, I'm up for it depends how how lazy you you're feeling really I think what well, so after all that it boils down to how lazy I feel huh well Andy, if you're willing to do all the hard work, I think we're going to be okay. I think it's important to keep in mind that we don't only stick to books, that we consider other artworks, creations from other realms as fair game. Nevertheless, remaining true to that idea of a of a of a list of suggested other works anyway i think that's enough of this introduction welcome everybody to the first episode of appendicitis with me barney and me andy goodman we hope you enjoy our first freewheeling conversation about Mervyn Peake's Gormenghast work. A little caveat, if you're not familiar with the books or Peake and what's going on there, do just have a little look around because our aim for the discussion was to hit the ground running with some interesting bits and pieces that we wanted to uh, thrash out. So here it is. So Andy, I was thinking that we have bonded over a few things, two and a bit things. The first thing is in a small way, Call of Cthulhu. And thanks for running the game last night. Um, 
which is something. It is something to have a shared interest in a game, um, I think. The second thing is this uh, wonderfully uh, extended debate about uh, GM styles, prep, and so on. And I think uh, our views on things are much closer than perhaps some people might think. But somehow in the debate, we've come to embody these two different poles for the purposes of discussion. Um, I, but also in that kind of, uh, what's that snake that eats its tail? Ouroboros. There you go, that kind of a way as well. So um, that's been wonderful. And, you know, we've had all this message going backwards and forwards. But then the topic for today, of course, the, the revelation for me that you are uh, a massive Gormenghast fan, as I am too. Mm. Although that is an interesting point that I will talk about a little bit about how massive a fan I am. It's um, interesting. I don't think I'm as big a fan as you are. Um, not that I don't love it, but um, we can we can get on to that. Well, sh shall I shall I say what I, the most hit me? What hit me the most about Gormenghast when I read it? Mm. Basically it completely blew out of the water for many, many, many years, basically any other kind of fiction or fantasy fiction, the, the, mm. the, the, the length, breadth, depth, ornateness, every, you know, everything about it, the ambition of it, just seemed to make other fiction really very pale and flat by comparison. That's a good and I, mm, yeah, um, and and it's infinitely better written than any other fantasy book of its era and probably since I would say. Mm. And I think you know I've heard some people you know they 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 find the if you like the excessive language um, too too much like hard work or too pretentious mm. or something like that. Um, but I've, I've been thinking about this in preparation for our discussion, and I think the excessive language is most of the time warranted because of the extent to which he world builds, character builds, um, and he is talking about place, space, ambient features, transitory ambient features, the people their habits and full culture. And then on top of that, you've got a story being told. Yes, I, I, I completely agree with that. The language is almost taking you on the journey into his world. And actually, um, I, th I think maybe I'm being a bit unfair because the, the, for me, the, the, the continual comparison is always with Tolkien when I read Peak. Mm. I'm always thinking about Tolkien, which is mm. funny because those were the two big books of my adolescence and and every time I compare them um, peak purely in literary terms always comes out ahead mm. um, <laughs> I guess it's not a race or a, a comparison but he is I think he is a much better writer but Tolkien's facility with language is equally amazing I mean he is after all a very gr a great linguist as well as a writer but the, um, 
but the, uh, Peak's narrative um, energy is so much greater, I think. Um, and listening, you know, I, so so I've been I've been listening to the audio books. So my life is is too busy for me to sit down with a book. So I listen, and and I've been I must confess I haven't got to the end of listening, and I haven't been listening chronologically as it were um mm. and i listen sometimes when i go to sleep and I, so i i kind of <laughs> in and out of it so i get these snap snippets of it but i'm really really impressed as well uh, of the 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 literary devices that he uses and <gasps> plot structures even you know there there are more flashbacks than i remember um, huh. um or, or kind that's of that's interesting like Unless I'm going completely crazy, this that the phase where Titus is born kind of keeps getting discussed. It keeps getting being brought back and brought back to the you know the days after his birth, the days after his birth, and yes, and that I had I think I'd missed uh, before or hadn't given it that much thought. But then also that you've got with all of these different settings all of these different aspects you've got these kind of lulls and peaks and troughs and yes um the different the different almost the different genres of of story and the different characters he, that he spends time with he, he he expands and contracts time to suit his narrative so he'll spend you know a third of a book talking about two days and then 10 years will pass without even, mm -hmm. you know, just in the next chapter mm -hmm. or something, um, which, which is not unique to him, of course. Many writers do that. Mm -hmm. um, but, um, but yes, I think what, um, it, it's, it's funny you should say how you've been um, consuming it this time, because literally we are, we are brothers under the skin, because I've been doing exactly the same thing. I, I don't have time to read much anymore. I've been listening to the audio books, um, putting it on at bedtime. I actually have had to stop doing that at bedtime, because I don't want to miss anything, because I do. So I, I'll put on someone's... Um, you know, boring podcast like uh, I'm joking, <laughs> but um, I, I, but I don't mind falling asleep to a podcast. But I I, I mind missing because actually I've had to like rewind and listen to big chunks of it again because mm. I literally fell asleep and missed something mm. um, important. Um, and 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 sometimes you don't know whether you have missed it or not because sometimes he doesn't actually narrate this this piece. It's like it's then just referred to in mm -hmm. in conversation mm -hmm. so it can be a bit disconcerting whether you have i missed something there or is that actually part of the way he's telling the story mm -hmm. i think i think that point you made about expanding and contracting time i think would be the first little morsel we can take out for gaming because i think we do mm. that all of the time suddenly yes, something will be you know and you know and it's divided into weeks days hours, moments, you know, all of that, those game structures are, are yes. you know, we use that all of the time. Yeah, that's, that's, that's very true, uh, of course. Um, and when I expand, uh, sorry, when I, is it expanding or contracting? When I expand time too much, no, no, it's when I contract time too much, <laughs> when time passes too quickly, um, I, you just say, you spend 12 days uh, walking along a road and then you get there, you know, that thing. Yeah. 
um, I feel like I've cheated myself and also somewhat cheated the players um, by um, not giving them any any richness or kind of mm-hmm. um, anything to look at on the journey. <laughs> okay. Yeah. 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 Mm, mm. I mean, often I found that that's an opportunity for players to, I don't know, interrogate an NPC or, or look more closely at something. Um, mm. You know, you, you can combine study of a book, let's say an occult text yes. with travel. Yes, but um, <clears throat> and and absolutely, you can do that. And of course, I I have done that. But I think I think there's a problem there as well, which is, and you know, I've talked <laughs> to you a few times in our messages about mm. about um, creating a believable world. And yes. for me, that that world starts to break apart if the connective tissue between the actual locations isn't real. It mm-hmm. you know. No, I, I don't know how we do this as GMs, mm-hmm. but somehow the blank spaces in between the points of interest on your map have to be as real as the points of interest. Otherwise, your world isn't a real world. And I'm going to make that as a bold statement of okay. <laughs> fact. Okay, so, so my, my, my reply to that is, well, instead of a believable world, how about a coherent world? coherent world yes so in the coherent world you can allow yourself to have uh gaps jumps illusion illusions illusions yes um and so on so so it you don't have to convince somebody it's not about making someone believe in someone something it's about giving them something that coheres intuitively yes Yes, and to, yeah. mm, and, and to get back to Peak, yeah. the way he does that is by making the descriptions of the, those points of interest, let's call let's say, yeah. he makes them as interesting as the blank corridors. Because he'll, if you think about the early, if you think about Gormenghas, the, the first book, he talks a lot about the corridors. Mm. <laughs> and and the stairways and the and and then it gets a little bit less later on because he doesn't feel I, I i sense he doesn't didn't feel like he needed to as much it's like yes if you've read up to here you 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 already know what the corridors and the stairways and the and the and the strange like rooms somewhere in the in the east wing that no one's been to for 400 years mm-hmm. you you kind of know what they're like but then it's interesting in Gormenghast, the second one. So we've got Titus growing Gormenghast and Titus alone. In the second oh, sorry. One, yes, yes. No, 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 I, no, I, I meant no, the wrong. No, yes. no, but I, I understood you to mean the whole thing. Um, yes. You know, in the second one, you start to have the, the surrounding landscape as being mm. the, the, the horizon line. Um, as, if it, as if the world moves out slightly. Of course, and and that is the. I haven't read Titus alone, but what I what I know of the story is that's when he goes out into the world. Yes, correct. Yes, yes. so 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 really the whole thing, and and maybe this comes back to the question that I posed to you on on our chat on our um, mm-hmm. messaging the other day. Who is the hero? Mm-hmm. It. I suppose in the end, of course, it becomes Titus. Even though I haven't read the third book, it is it is the classic in a way story. 
of the the boy growing up and then wanting to find his own world you left me a message somewhere somehow that how about steer pike being a particularly interesting anti-hero and that i was thinking a lot about that and i think this i think this um basically all of the characters in the books are horrible in one way <laughs> yes or in one all of them another. um now titus is possibly the kind of the exception but he's not totally like you know he's not all sunshiny out of places um no and so basically if you've got if 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 steerpike is held up to be the anti-hero actually he's just one of uh you know a, a, an infinite cast of a basically detestable unattractive Mm. Uh, Although I might put a um, one caveat there, I think Flay. Um, for those who don't know the books, because <laughs> <laughs> this is the problem with this podcast: if you haven't read the books, you won't know what the fuck we're talking about. But, but hopefully, um, you'll go out and get them. Yes, yes. So Flay is the um, is the valet, I suppose, of the Earl um, and the the loyal. I mean, he's a miserable bastard, of course, but he is loyal to the end, to his death. Mm. Sorry, spoiler. He is loyal to the end. And in a way, and he's the one that is banished and he stays banished until he is called to arms. Mm. Yeah, he, lives, he goes and lives in a cave because he has humiliated the court of Grown. And, and so he, he, in a way is the most n noble, in inverted commas. So you could say he has the most heroic characteristics. But for all, I mean, I, you know, so yes, my, I should maybe my, add a caveat then that most characters have something interesting going on with them or some qualities, but they have as many uh, unpleasant, yeah. grotesque characteristics. Grotesque. Like, like with Titus, like Titus at the beginning, <laughs> At the beginning, there's, they, they're always talking about how ugly he is. He's ugly. He's ugly. And the, but isn't that just their perception of, of ugliness? I, I wonder whether he really is ugly. Of course, but but then yeah, and and, and the you know, and Peak's descriptions are of of I suppose of of him being strange somehow. Mm. Um, so you know, bringing bringing all of the different types of people. Uh, appearances perhaps then you know into some center ground of strangeness rather than to say outright that that uh, that Titus is ugly but but then you made a comment didn't you about about um, Lord and Lady Gormenghast um, making Titus and how uh, yes <laughs> how, how, uh, what an unpleasant thought that was yeah, and actually, I realised that they do. There is a little passage where they talk about it in, in I think in the second book where they make this, where he makes this veiled sort of, and of course, no one would want to imagine that yeah. coupling kind of thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> exactly what we were saying. You, know, you really mm -hmm. don't want to imagine it, but they, it, it's something like, and somehow they managed to to do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and. <laughs> And so and another question you had in our discussions was 
um, where does Steer Pike come from? He seems to come mm. fully formed. And I, I had some thoughts about that. Right, um, yes. And that was in the, the, that quote that I sent you in a message uh, where he, he has a business card that he presents to uh, Lady Fuchsia, um, which just says, mm. his infernal slyness, the art yes. fluke, Steer Pike. <laughs> So, um, so Steerpike, uh, at least by that point, is pretty open about the fact that he is infernal, sly, and that he thinks of himself as being fluky, an arch fluke. And his monkey is called Satan. There you go. So then, I mean, it's a little bit too easy, though. Uh, you know, I mean, that, that's too obvious a, a kind of a thing. I'm sure Peak was using that as a, almost as a counterpoint. Because Steerpike, he's not the devil. No. I don't think. <laughs> no. But then then what I was thinking is he's like a he's like a force. He's a mm. he's a force that is that is I don't want to say he was a necessary force for Peak, but somehow Peak has lighted on needing this, like you say, a counterpoint to this crumbling tradition. As if as if yes. that's an inevitability. And that he chooses to construct a story that begins at that point. And, and then him and Titus are just two parts of the same thing, mm, really. Mm, mm. Which is the rejection of this ridiculous 4,000... I actually calculated, I think it's about 3,500 years that the court of Grown has been mm. in existence for. Because mm -hmm. he's the 75th? Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, you worked it out. Earl, and, and if you and if you work out the generations, it's thousands of years, mm -hmm. which doesn't really come across because he does it quite lightly. But it's a it's a very weighty and, and almost horrible idea that this the this court how many how many um, empires, let alone castles and courts, have been around for that for that long? Mm. Not very few, or none even probably. Mm. So so the idea that the, that they're fighting against this incredible weight of tradition. Mm. It's pretty monumental, really, mm. Mm. Uh, and 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 Steerpike maybe maybe without Steerpike, Titus couldn't have ever escaped in the end. Mm. I know he was a rebel and he was running off um, into the into the woods and all of that, um, but he might have been pulled back in if if Steerpike hadn't been there to uh, well to just burn away all of the mm -hmm. you know calcified you know deposits. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, and maybe this is maybe it does this idea there that certain things transpire at certain times um you know this this sense of inevitability or that um someone would emerge who who performs that function to mm. un, you know, to undermine this to undermine this tradition so you know in a way it is a story of 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 teenage rebellion that's what i very much see it as mm -hmm. um adolescent rebellion um which is why you know and if you see it in that way then steerpike isn't as thoroughly evil a character as mm. he's described well you know this this comes to another little nugget i was thinking in terms of gaming where you can see in peak an attempt and this again this is not something unique to peak but you see an effort to present character development. And I think mm. there's something interesting there, you know, when, when we think about how our <laughs> characters in a game, in a role play game, 
develop, uh, you know, go from level to level or gain more skills. And so, you know, Steer Pike, you, you almost, he's almost like an aeroplane taking off, you know, from that moment in the kitchen, he takes the tiniest opportunity to, to leave with, uh, to, to escape. And then he finds Flay and, and, and it just spins out from there. And he just takes yes. one opportunity after another, after another, until he finds himself in this position of power but it's not in any way believable or realistic and, and i suppose those words don't matter in a in a book like this but it in in it is never explained how has he got these capabilities where did they come from he, if he's been in the kitchen the whole time why isn't he just another dumb vassal like all the others you know under swelter's horrible fist Mm -hmm. um how did he become this extraordinary because he had that right at the beginning it wasn't just like he happened to get out and then 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 you know he he'd been kind of you can you sense he's been he's been plotting this for a long time to escape and that he he had a plan mm -hmm. but then, but but I'm, then I'm, it, it takes you know it takes him you know two books to to kind of go on that that journey to get from the kitchens to 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 the to the climax yes so i think we should talk more about the gaming bit but the the other thing i the only other thing i wanted to talk about from a literary sense yeah. is the incredible modernity of it mm. when i and i and i sent you again i sent um we were chatting about it before but this was written or it was published in 1946 or at least um Titus Grown was published in 1946. And then, mm. interestingly, there was a, the, the second book, I think, was published in 1960. Is that, I think I'm right to say that. I, I, so could Gumgas be 57 or something. Or is, okay. I, but yes, you're, you know. So there's a big gap between the first two. And in a way, um, there's almost like a generational gap between the first two. If you think about the books probably being published around the war and pre-war mm. versus stuff being published in the late 50s, early 60s, we're talking about a cultural revolution sort of started to happen mm. in the second one. And I think you can see some elements of it in the second book that there's this, but even in the first book, there's an incredible modernity to the language, to the um to actually, there's quite a lot of sexuality in it, even though there isn't sex per se, mm. there is sexual um, language and, mm -hmm. and implications of sexual activity that you do not see. You certainly don't see it in Tolkien ever. <laughs> and, you, and maybe you see it a bit in C.S. Lewis. I, I, I don't know, I haven't read C.S. Lewis in a long, long time. And maybe we can think of these three in some way as being co-equivalent. Co, mm -hmm. co or comparable. Um, I mean, lady, yeah. lady, uh, lady Grown's uh, interest in cats and birds is is a bit disturbing. Yes, but she's kind of like a druid, isn't she? <laughs> yes. she's, she has. She sort of has this ridiculous like um, telepathy with them, doesn't yeah. she? See now, um, that, that for me was another thing that I wanted to talk about was that it's so blatant that these are caricatures. They are, you know, when we think about his illustrations, and maybe that's a thing, a topic for another time, but he's got the illustrations in there and these descriptions of the characters and the grotesqueness. Everything is kind of excessive. People are excessively thin, excessively fat, excessively mm. tall, short. Everything is, is, is caricatural. 
And Irma Prune Squalor's excessively pointed nose. <laughs> exactly. So, so that, that to me comes back to this point that it's not about believability. It's about mm. this coherence of this totally exaggerated setting and characters. And therefore that, that someone like Steer Pike popping up out of nowhere, to me is not hugely problematic because mm. the whole thing is this mobilization of caricatural and symbolic elements, characters, events. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and actually, I wanted to touch on that, and that maybe this can be the way we steer back to gaming. I think it's very hard, almost impossible, to create a villain like Steerpike in a and d game, or, or any role-playing game. The reason I think it's impossible is that it's very hard to create this nuanced villain because the, the, the reaction to the villain, villain amongst your players is immediately, let's go and kill him. Mm -hmm. It's not, let's go and try and understand him a bit more and see where he's coming from and what his motivation is. And wow, this is actually the most interesting character in the, in the campaign. We, why, why should we go and kill him? Let's, let's, Let's try and interact with him in different ways. I, I think, I think mm. it's very hard to create that ambivalence because um, it, it makes the game, I suppose, less less clear for the players about about where that what their place is in it and how they should be. And maybe that's okay. But I, I, I've never been able to create a villain with nuance like that. It's always it's always melodramatic. You know, the obvious guy in the black cat kind of thing mm -hmm. what I do you think about that i think i think that's a really great and valuable point andy because it's not that peak doesn't have violence and conflict at all and and he really builds up to these moments and they are incredibly exciting aren't they mm. um amazing so, amazing so it's not that he doesn't have any of that ex those extreme engagements um so so yeah, I, yeah, it's that's a fascinating one because Steerpike has this plotting, this this you're you're in the mind of him plotting and plotting and plotting, and you know as if other people and events and things are cogs and he can slightly move them and set them turning in some way, and you're just watching that happen. Now, I, is there a way that you could do that in a mm. in an RPG game? You know, almost as if you could play open, so it's it's not. The, the actions of the villain are not uh, obscure. But think, and then th but think about the way that characters interact or NPCs interact with the players. Mm -hmm. The only way they really interact is by talking to them and by doing things to them. Mm -hmm. You can't ever get inside an NPC's head, really, mm -hmm. and because what is the vehicle for that? You, it would be, it would be a strange game, and maybe you make a game that does exactly that, that does just that, and nothing more. But um, therefore, the the actual inner dialogue, the 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 motivation for why a villain is is doing what they're doing, um, has to be pretty blatant and, and simplistic because you can't convey. You know, you're not going to have them extemporizing. No one wants to sit around listening to the villain talking about about um, why he is a twisted individual. They mm. just want to hear him tell them what he's going to do to them and then, and then you know, foil his plan kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
So, and, and that in a way is at the heart of why it's, I found it very hard. Um, and I had to massively change the characters when I, when I put them into my Gormenghast campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, maybe this is a good moment to talk about that. Because you've, yeah. you've, uh, you've, you've, you've used Gormenghast as, as a creative launch pad for, for things, perhaps more directly. Um, and, um, and, and I have as well. Um, and it's interesting because at the beginning I, I talked about how maybe I'm not as much of a fan as, as you are. Um, and the reason is that I hadn't actually l- looked at the book since, um, until, until listening to it again in the last few weeks, I hadn't looked at the book since I was 15 years old, <laughs> but it had such a huge impact on me when I was 15 that it stayed in my head, but I wasn't. Um, you know, it was only these broad brushstrokes and and the characters that really stayed in my head. Mm-hmm. And so what I did was, and I knew I wanted, I don't know how I made a decision to actually use it as the basis for my campaign, but it just kind of clicked one day. I thought, oh, yes, that is a setting. And I immediately went online and I looked around everywhere I could. I said, okay, well, there must be a Gormenghar setting out there in the whole world of hundreds of thousands of RPG, millions of RPG players out there and, mm-hmm. and GMs. Someone must have done a Gormenghar setting. There, there is not one. There, there is one kind of pseudo, like it's almost like a blog page that talks about it. I, I, unless, unless I'm just not very good at doing Google searches, <laughs> there no one has ever done one. And I thought, hmm, that's either a um, um, a really good opportunity to do one, or or it's a very good reason not to, to do it. Mm-hmm, <laughs> because mm-hmm. because as I as I've said, I, I think it's almost impossible to turn into a campaign for a lot of those reasons about the the in, the the subtlety of the characters, it's quite hard to convey them when all you have is the, are these maybe conversational interchanges and you can't see their inner life, really, mm-hmm. because so much of it is the, is the anxieties and, and fears and, and anger and frustrations of their inner lives that, that creates this, this incredible richness to them. So mm-hmm. what I did is I, I, um, I took the characters and I thought about how to, how, how to interpret them into a more traditional Dungeons and Dragons scenario you know what what would they how could i boil them down a bit to their essence um and and that's what i did Mm -hmm. Um, i was really i was really uh you sent me a picture of the map for the hall of bright carvings is that Mm. (laughs) yes and that's and that's this this opening the opening of the of the first book and it's and it's wonderful it's brilliant um and thank you and so could you say a bit more about that yeah. setting, uh, you know, how you, how, you, how you came up with the map and how you used it and what was going on in that? Mm. So that was actually, it's kind of interesting. Um, that <laughs> There's a whole history to this, and I, and I really don't want to go into it because we'll be here forever. But um, I had written the campaign once up to about like the halfway point, let's say. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of knew where I wanted it to go 
And, but I never wrote the second half of it because my first group that I played with, we, we had to finish, we had to break up because my daughter was born and I had to mm. stop running the game. And, and I certainly couldn't continue writing this ridiculously long campaign that I'd been writing. Mm-hmm. And, and it was like 30, 40,000 words at that point. So, so stupid, so, so stupid to do it the way I did. <laughs> um, I, I really should, but, but I'm kind of proud of it now, but also thinking what an idiot. Like you did, because then, then when I wrote the second half, um, about two years, three years, two, two, three years later, when I, when I moved and I got a new group and my daughter was older and I could run games again. Mm-hmm. Um, then I did it largely in note form. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but then I, I did flesh it out and I ended up writing probably, you know, a lot of words. But um, that section in the whole of Bright Carvings, that was something that I never wrote in the first pass. It was only second time round. Uh, the campaign played out in a very different way. So I ran it twice. Of course, it's going to play out in a completely mm-hmm. different way. Mm-hmm. And, and in the first campaign, there was a reason to go to the Hall of Bright Carving the first time I ran it, but they never decided to. So I, I never made it. Second mm-hmm. time, they, they went there. And the way the campaign is structured is, um, is the classic start small. So they start out in the grey salt marshes. Now, I don't know if you know the geography of Gormenghast very well, because I don't suppose it's, it's not that easy to, to pick it up from the books. Well, I'm but not if a big go- fan of Gormenghast as you are, so... You <laughs> <don't think> so. <laughs> no, 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 but you know it far better than me. Um, no, 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 you know I- where the salt marshes are. <laughs> <laughs> um, you just go to the Wikipedia pages and, okay. and it'll tell you. Okay. Uh, so that's what I did. That was my cheat. All of my knowledge comes really from the Wikipedia. All of my knowledge for the campaign really came from the Wikipedia pages. And they're quite extensive. And they're quite good. Um, and, it, and it described the different locations mentioned in the book. And they're in the south. Well, actually, it didn't say they're in the south. I put them in the south. There is the, because I sent you the, the world map as well. Mm-hmm. There's, the, there's the gray salt marshes, which is a lovely name. And I thought that's a good place to start. You can, you know, because when you're a, um, a, a, you know, a, a, a zero level shit farmer, you know, you want to start in the mart, you want to start in the swamp, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, because then there's, then the only way is up from there, isn't it? Mm-hmm. If you start in the swamp. So I put the starting village in the swamp. Um, it was, the map was the village of Homlet, um, T1, village of Homlet, because I love that map. That map means everything to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I called it Borogrove after, after the Lewis Carroll um, Jabberwocky poem. Mm-hmm. Um, Bor- Borogrove is not a place. I, um, I don't know. I can't remember what it is. I think it's, I think it's like a tree or something. I, it's, I can't all exactly. it's all Mimsy. It's all Mimsy. That's all I know. Yeah. Uh, so, and I thought, that's a good name for a village. So I called it Borogrove. Um, and, and they start there. And it's effectively there in the environments, in the environs of the bright carvers and the mud people. Yeah. That's the setting. Because... That's who they are. They're not in Gormenghast. The whole campaign was structured about them getting to Gormenghast and getting in to Gormenghast. Mm-hmm. And there were all of these little threads that t- tied them to the, to the citadel. I called it mm-hmm. the citadel. I don't think it's mm-hmm. called the citadel. Um, but it's this imposing, you know what it's like. It's like a city-state, really. It's, it's yeah. the, all these towers and this crazy, huge, nice city-sized um, set of buildings um and in my world it's it's kind of up on this plateau of a of a this this very steep-sided um almost um like mesa-like structure and mm-hmm. it's at the top and, it, mm-hmm. and it's 
um, many miles wide and you can't get in. It's surrounded by walls and you can't get in if you're not. If you weren't born there, you can't get in unless, unless you are invited in. And the only way to be invited in is to become either a wet nurse to an earling, of course, Kader, mm-hmm. <laughs> or if you're a bright carver, you can come and bring your carvings to the hall. Mm-hmm. So, um, so the characters don't really know that, you know, there could be anything in, I mean, in a way you always want to get to the city. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, if you start in the fucking swamp, you do want to get to the city because that's where all the fun stuff is, but there's no particular, you know, you don't start with that as a motivation. And, and, um, and at some point they do get, into the city but i can't do you know um kafka's the castle um you know uh, yes as a as as the idea i don't know if i've ever sat down and read it but yes I it's a wonderful it. book yeah. it's, a, it's a wonderful book but the whole thing is about this guy trying to get into the castle and failing mm. and just never being able to get in um and i kind of wanted a bit of that i wanted to make it very frustrating so they end up hating gormengast mm-hmm. they end up absolutely hating it because of because it's keeping them out and that's that's kind of like how it is in the book is that the the people looked up to it admired it were in fear of it and probably hated it as well because it's it's everything that they they couldn't have well, and couldn't be you know andy i just heard a really interesting passage in in the second book today and and peak says very clearly that the people in the the dwellings the mud dwellings outside mm. the slum they direct mm. their anger towards each other and not to the castle mm. and i thought that's mm. another really interesting just a thought about how you structure power dynamics in a particular region so the the implication is that they should be pissed off with gormenghast but actually they defer yes. all of that to each other and have this this brutal kind of inter interfighting so so to get back to the original question um which is you know the whole of bright carvings um so i wanted it to be like a, a mini funhouse dungeon <laughs> a mini funhouse dungeon a mini funhouse dungeon because it's only got like six rooms in it yeah. um because i needed um there was like i almost wrote it like a one shot and i have actually run it at conventions as a one shot um because somehow i hadn't written um i can't remember why i decided to do that but they needed to get to the hall of bright carvings to recover a particular bright carving Mm. that was in some way um a key a key to unlock something they weren't entirely sure what Mm -hmm. but the 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 enemy the evil people the the bad guys in the campaign were also after this thing Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so it was both a a fetch quest (laughs) Mm -hmm. and a kind of heist and a race against the clock Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. they go to the hall of bright carvings and they get there just after the bad guys have got there and um they go into the office um they go into the uh, the administrator's office, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and he's there writing in the ledger, writing in a ledger, and coughing. Um, and they, he kind of ignores them, and then he's coughing some more, and then he coughs up some blood, 
and then he falls forward dead with a knife in his back. <laughs> and they right. go and read what he's writing in his ledger. And he's trying to complete the last entry with a knife in his back. Yeah, yeah. So the villains came in and basically just um, threatened him, asked where this thing was. He refused to tell them and then they stabbed him. And then what he's writing is the value of the object that the villains are about to go and retrieve. <laughs> <laughs> Loyal to the end. Had to finish his job. <laughs> it was kind of funny. He's a gnome. I think his name's Crack Stamp. Yes, <laughs> Crack Stamp. I, I tried to make names that were as good as Peak and I failed. Um, no, crack Stamp and crack of course, Stamp sounds fine. Crack Stamp's all right. But, um, but then Rotcod, who's a dwarf, of course, um, Rotcod is, is under, has been dragged into the museum to, to point them out because they don't know. No one knows what this bright carving looks like but they know Rotcod does. So the villains have got him. And then the party go in and, they, and they're suddenly like, it's turned from let's go and get this object to, oh my God, we're about to get fucked. <laughs> so they have to then go into the museum. And what I decided with the museum is that it's basically like a, a funny a funny sort of um, low-level tomb of horrors. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it's just full of these ridiculous traps, um, each one based mm. around um, statues or carvings. Um, so each room um, has all these kind of in beautiful carvings in that are there to kill you kind of thing. Mm. And that's why, but, but if, you're, if you're taken on a guided tour, as you're meant to be, and of course, they don't end up killing you, but not, they're not. They're, um, you know, all the, the, the uh, it's been broken into. So, are they, are they, so, yeah. are they, are they, if you go on the guided tour, were they set off for your pleasure? You know, like, yes, like, exactly. Brilliant. Yes. That's brilliant. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So, um, so in the first room, um, uh, in the first room, there are these uh, like squared colored tiles. It's like a colored tile trap and the carvings are along the sides and if you, um, different animals along the sides and if you step on the wrong tile, they, they you know, breathe fire at you or whatever. Mm -hmm. Nothing really um, um, fun, uh, magical about that. I, I stole a lot of these from various sources. The second room um, is full of these, they're actually clay, so I cheated a bit because it had, they, they couldn't be wood. It wouldn't have worked. Um, the second room, it's full of these, um, like completely full of horses, of riders. Like literally, you open the door and all you see, it's like, you know, the, um, the Chinese terracotta, uh, terracotta army, exactly. Um, the difference is all of these are full of bees. They're all <laughs> full of bees. So they're clay, they're horse-shaped clay beehives yes yes Brilliant. um Brilliant. but but they're sealed so the bees are just really angry <laughs> <laughs> and 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 if you go and if you go in it's very hard to um you have to be very careful not to knock any of them over because then it sets off this chain reaction they all fall over they smash and then the bees all come out <laughs> and okay okay um and then the third room um, it's kind of getting back to this fertility thing because there's a lot of the fertility that that's sort of in there in, in the books, the idea of fertility. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I really played it up mm -hmm. because 
um, the way that Kader is chosen, she's actually chosen to be the nursemaid in a much more elaborate way, the wet nurse rather, in, in, my, in, my, uh, in my campaign. Um, what happens is Nanny Slag tra travels around the village. One of the villages is chosen to have something called the Rite of Flowers. And what, what is done is, what is done is that any young women who are pregnant can uh, are kind of presented as flower maidens. And then Nanny Slag, who is, of course, a druid as well, mm -hmm. <laughs> although that doesn't quite fit. But anyway, um, she calls up the, the wood mother um, and all of these tendrils from the, from the ground come up, wrap themselves around these pregnant um, women and inspect them for their, for, for their fertility. And the one that is un, um, the most fertile is, is then crowned the flower maiden and becomes the wet nurse. And of course, this only happens once every, you know, 50 years. So it's a really big deal. Mm. Um, and that's how Kada ends up being, being um, chosen um, to, 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 and that's how she gets into the castle and uh, into Gormenghast and, and the party end up interacting with her. She's kidnapped at one point. It'll, it, it, yeah, it'll be uh -huh, very D&D-ish. Uh -huh. So anyway, uh, back to the Hall of Right Carving. So then there's the, this stepped kind of, um, this, these steps leading up to these fertility sculptures, statues, right carvings. Mm -hmm. And you have to genuflect to them and, 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 and praise the, the, the nature goddess. And if you mm -hmm. don't, they breathe out this um, this pollen at you that confuses you, and then you don't know which direction you're walking. You you kind of lose mm -hmm. your orientation, mm -hmm. and you end up just walking off the edge of this of this huge drop. <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> random. You end up randomly walking, and mm -hmm. you're likely to end up just walking off the edge and falling like thirty feet down to the mm -hmm. to the ground. Mm -hmm. um, and then the final. Um, uh, then there's another one with these suspended animals like fish yes suspended fish and or, or they seem to be floating and then they start spinning around when you go in the room but what you don't realize is that they're attached by these tiny almost these invisible monofilament type things and if you walk through the room you basically just get sliced to pieces uh, <laughs> as you uh -huh. walk through Brilliant. so yeah nice. yeah nice can i yeah. ask a, so can anyway I ask, can i ask a a, yeah. a a big a big direct question here did you not yes. feel? Did you not feel dirty turning the low fantasy <laughs> form of ghast into the high fantasy of D and D? Oh gosh! Oh, every time. Um, <laughs> but it didn't start high fantasy. It was. It started dirty. It started really dirty, and that was my intention. And what I wanted was to create this. I wanted to create this baroque, grotesque. Um, environment also in the city but i just mm -hmm. couldn't do it it because by the time they got there they were so high level that you can't really play that style anymore because the enemies you face are all fantastical mm. you're no longer you know like going up against the grizzled brigand who who's gonna gut you over a plate of a plate of food in the in the in the scuzzy tavern mm -hmm. um or, or go on a, or go into the swamp on the swamp captain's boat to, 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 to retrieve um, his his bag of coins, and and maybe maybe that was um, and that was 
that was where it kind of it didn't fall apart, but it just changed into something completely, sure. completely, completely off. You know, it it, it went in in a really bizarre direction at that mm-hmm. point. Once that once once it went into more high fantasy, you, you're absolutely right. It's no no no. I, I'm, I'm maybe being I should. I'm being cheeky. No, 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 but it, it's a good question, and 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 actually, probably much better to run it in a low fantasy, um, you know, system. Mm. Um, I, I the magic, had... the magic breaks it. The magic breaks sure. it. Sure, totally, totally, yeah. Um, I and I had I had one more thought about games, uh, in relation to what what Peak does, and it's and it is about like we've talked about about the immensity of Gormenghast, and that basically it's an infinite setting. You know, mm. it can it can it can never be. It's inexhaustible. It can never be exhausted. There will always be another wing another chamber, another corridor, another cellar, another passageway in or out of the castle or something like that. And, and, and I was thinking about that. How, how does that work? I was thinking, well, he gives us these, Pete gives us these really well-defined centers, you know, we're with a character in a very concrete place, but then mm. the, the, the distance becomes, the periphery becomes fuzzy. You know, it just goes on and on and on. It's just on and on and mm. on. And and that's almost like a limit because if you were to try and uh, overcome that horizon, you would die. You know, you just can't. You would be exhausted. You would. You would. You just could not. There is not enough time in the day. There's not enough energy in your body to make yeah. that to make that distance. Um, and, and, so, and and that happens to Steer Pike at the beginning. He fall, He lies down exhausted. And Absolutely. he escapes at the beginning, if you remember. Yeah, yeah, and that, and I was thinking, you know, I was thinking then when you're talking about having these high high level characters, you know, if they had to just climb up, uh, climb up the edge of the of the wall uh, as their only way out of the room, um, and it's life or death on every roll, and it takes them, you know, six hours of playtime, uh, they they might fall and die. Yeah, but they can't in D and D. That's the problem. You get to a point in D. I don't know if you know the mechanics very well. You get to a point where you could fall from any any height and not die. <laughs> really, I can't believe. Just, that. Yeah, I can't believe. Yeah, because that. of yeah. the because of the way the hit points work. Sure. Um, okay. Okay. Yeah. But, well, because of the way the way falling works as well, and maybe it's only certain characters, but I think um, certainly a monk, a monk character could fall. Out of an aeroplane, and every time they they would live <laughs> <laughs> at a certain level. So you know, <laughs> Excellent. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, but um, hmm. there's also this. Oh no, I'm not going to get into that. But there's there's a hilarious thing about um, you, you, the the infinite the um, the the peasant railgun. I don't know if you you've heard of that. I haven't heard of the peasant railgun, no. Uh, I, it, it's very funny. Um, I, I, I want to talk about it just very briefly because it on. is so funny. It makes me laugh so much. Why not? Um, so in the old version of D&D, uh, in one of the older versions, um, and actually I think even in the current version, um, a free action is you can pass someone something. You can hand them something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so in other words, it doesn't take any time according mm-hmm. to the rules. Mm-hmm. So if you get um, enough peasants 
to go from you to maybe a mile distance. Mm -hmm. And you hand the first peasant an arrow. Mm -hmm. And then he hands it to the next peasant. And then he hands it to the next peasant. Mm. Basically, the arrow would pass from you to a mile in, in, in like zero time. It's like so Zeno's, effectively Zeno's you've created paradox. A, <laughs> so effectively, you've created a rail gun. The arrow would go be traveling so fast that it would immediately kill anyone at the other end. Oh my god! Yeah, that's a whole nother <laughs> twist. I thought you were going to say. I thought you were going to say that you can, you could, you could shoot the, you could shoot a weapon and then pass it to the next person whose go it is, and they can shoot the weapon and then they pass it on and. And so basically, you could well, yes. with them just passing on. You could do that as well. But the, the idea of the peasant railgun is so much more funny. Mm. Um, you just need about 10,000 peasants. Mm. But, but here's where the thing gets even funnier. Um, according to the rules of, that, of the, that previous version, I think it was 3.5, there's, there's no rules for momentum. Right. Okay. So what would what would happen is the arrow would travel infinitely fast for a mile, and then it would just drop to the ground when the last peasant. <laughs> well, it sounds to me like one of the rituals that you get in Gormenghast for the, for the groans. <laughs> um, you know, these elaborate rituals with reflections in water and so on and so forth. So it could be like an execution mechanism, couldn't it? <laughs> um, Actually, I'm laughing about it, but that was another thing that was um, for me where I, where I personally, I know that I failed. And what I failed to do was to figure out how to make the rituals meaningful in the game or something that was... So, yes, I created this ritual, the Rite of Flowers, but it was almost like an event. It was like this, this, this narrative key peak moment because immediately afterwards the bad guys attack and kidnap Kader and take her off. Um, and there's this huge battle that almost destroys the village. So it was a, it was a, we actually played it as, a, a, um, as an all-day session with the festival in the morning that was all kind of light and fun and all these fun games and wrestling and racing and catch the greased pig and all of this and, and all these different foods and and tarot readings and and then then the big fest then the big ritual and then the bad guys attack right at that moment and then it turns into this massive um like multi location battle mm -hmm. so it took like nine hours um but that, that was that was using the ritual as as a kind of flavor in a way for for a big battle um mm -hmm. what i failed to do or, or f ever figure out to do is how to bring that all that other ritual and 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 um cultural stuff into the city because if it's just happening in the background the players kind of just ignore it or it's just mm -hmm. oh yeah there's some weird guys doing some weird stuff over there and so on um so i could never figure out how to how to really bring that in i think it was very hard i what, what i what i used to, um for a little bit of inspiration was vornheim you know the do you know vornheim the zach um smith or whatever his name is only only uh, talking zach s yeah uh, only people talking about it so there is a bit of ritual stuff in there there's some weird things that weird like processions and cults and things like that mm. so you can have that as a bit of flavor but if all it is is stuff happening in the background then i don't think it's really mm -hmm. meaningful so i could never figure that out 
I mean, that's that's kind of an issue, isn't it, for for Call of Cthulhu, isn't it? And the magic in Call of Cthulhu. You know how mm. how do you how do you how do you make it neither simply a background descriptive cutscene, for want of a better term, um, or just simply a well pass the check and you manage to summon forth God knows what. Yeah. I haven't had to do that yet. So let's see. <laughs> um, so my players in my Cthulhu campaign have learnt two spells to call a deity, but they're far too scared to do it. Really? So, well, um, like the, the players are actually scared for the characters to do it. Yes. Amazing. Yes. Amazing. <laughs> um, and, and rightly so. Yeah. Rightly so. They don't know. None of them know Call of Cthulhu. But but it really, if you call a deity in Call of Cthulhu, you just you're just pretty much dead. Yeah. I mean, unless unless you're very committed to that deity, they're just gonna mm -hmm. destroy mm -hmm. you as soon as they appear because you're like, you're not a believer. Why have you bothered me? Squash. <laughs> well, I you know um, I as as you know I am I am hoping to do this Invictus game after mm. after people's interest in the new little audio dungeon group. And I'm thinking, I quite like the idea of, of going pulp, but then reining it back. That's, that's uh. the way my mind works is, you know, that you could have it much more pulpy, but actually it's quite, it's quite restrained. So when it does, when the stuff does happen, you can be a bit more um, gregarious with it all. Mm. I mean, you don't really, you don't want to do that where once they do like the ultimate thing in a way, because it's like the ultimate thing in Lovecraft is bringing forth a great old one mm -hmm. um, in, in all of the great stories. You don't want that to be the end of like just a random end of the campaign. You want them to experience it and enjoy it in some way and be terrified by it, of course. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, it would be a Absolutely. bit of a shame. Absolutely. Yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. Um, I, and, I, and I mean, I mean, this is a whole nother discussion, but whenever I'm thinking about how to, how to calibrate Call of Cthulhu, it is this thing of, I'm much more, I'm much more attracted to the pulp rule, the pulp end of it, the new rules for that. But then, mm. but then really wanting to just, just, just pull it in and not turn it into a kind of I can shoot anything from any dimension that moves. So here's my take on it, because having run quite a lot now um, mm. and having run mainly one shots, actually, like we're playing um, with uh, Forget Me Not. It's called Forget Me Not, by the way, in case you didn't realize. Mm. Um, uh, mainly one shots, but also now I'm running an ongoing campaign. Mm. It's very different. Even though I'm running the normal, you know, the court, the, the normal game, not not pulp in, in either in either instance. Mm. Um, the one shots are are lethal, uh, are absolutely lethal, mm. um, and intentionally so because you want to go on the full funhouse ride, don't you? Mm. Mm. <laughs> you know, that's part of the deal. Is you want to you want your character to die or go mad, or, or at least that's mm -hmm. that's what I assume. Yeah, because. Yeah. Um, but for the campaign, even playing normal rules, you can't, if you do that, and, and the old master, Nile Nile was notorious for that. It was a meat grinder. 
like anytime you encountered anything that wasn't basically a guy with a gun, you would pretty much be dead. Mm. So, you know, there are, there are all these stories of, of how, you know, that we played it and each of us re- went through about eight characters. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then it creates this huge narrative problem, which is why are all these new people turning up? What, how do they know what's happened before? And why would they, you know, is it just the bellhop? you know in the hotel (laughs) it's like oh oh that guy just got um just got um, his brain removed by um an entity from the outer 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 void yeah i think i'll uh, that sounds like fun i think i'll join in (laughs) no the bellhop (laughs) well you know um yeah 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 so yeah yeah so 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 anyway playing with the same rule sets i i run it in a very different way so so the the and actually, I think the players play in a very different way. It's far less cavalier. Um, it's far less. Um, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna call this. I'm gonna use the spell. I'm gonna, I'm gonna look, look, use this this object, this this artifact. Um, they're far more cautious. I think in the one shots, it's like, yep, come on, let's get that spell cast. Let's see what the fuck happens. Yeah, you know, because it's it's more. You know, you're going for a joyride, as as people have said. You're you're you dr- you're driving it like it's stolen. Yeah, the character. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, Andy, shall we call it a day for today? You've got work. I've got dinner yes. to cook. And um, <laughs> I think we've gone around the big house today. We have. Um, I, I can't help feeling that we didn't get to the bottom of Gormenghast, really, though. But um, I think we talked a lot about it. But I, I wonder whether we should um, maybe do, do, maybe at least, do a little bit on it again some other I time. I don't, I don't know. So. Um, I, I've, there's, I don't know if you know, but Michael Moorcock wrote an introduction to the books as well. Oh. And I haven't read it yet. I'll send it to you. It's on, well, mm-hmm. I'll give you the link. It's online. Um, and so I'm, ca- I'm quite interested to know if there's anything in there that, that uh, mm. you know. Um, yeah, let's make that some homework then. Absolutely, absolutely. And then to actually, you know, finish listening and uh, have further thoughts on it and and maybe expand on some of these things that we've touched on today. Absolutely. it's It's been a pleasure, Barney. Thank you so much for um, suggesting we do this. And uh, maybe this is the beginning of, uh, of something uh, something cool. I think so. <laughs> okay well yeah well i'll i'll see you uh i'll see you in um in clio michigan then hey eh? you will uh, you will see me by the cigarette machine <laughs> see I you Andy. indeed okay bye bye a little coda that i can't resist you will have just heard andy doing his thing all about you know staying true to Call of Cthulhu and not going near Pulp Cthulhu. And I'm saying, I don't know, I like the idea of, you know, I like pulping it up a bit, but then, you know, reining it back in and and he's giving it all that. No, 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 it's all, no, it's all, it's really, you can't face off the mythos like that. Well, people, we've got news for you. If you listen to, I think, Andy's last episode called the morning after the night before, what does he do? What does he do? He basically announces that for his Masks of Nyarlathotep campaign group that he's, that he's got, he's switching up 
to Cthulhu to Pulp Cthulhu. You know, like, like, like it's just every old day, you know, of the week. Just like a normal thing. He's just turning that dial right up. So, if you believe that Andy is some kind of Call of Cthulhu purist, you've got another thing coming. Because he's now got pulp all over his hands and all the better for it. Do look out for more exciting episodes in the appendicitis range. See you.